0: Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you have spoken and you have recorded your words in this book we have in our laps. We pray that you would now speak through your Holy Spirit who inspired these words and give us ears to hear what you have to say and minds to understand it and by your spirit carry it into our hearts with great power that it might take root and bear fruit, and today that you might increase our love and our devotion for Jesus Christ. Come do this and more, we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I have been with the same cell phone company now for nearly 20 years. And I've thought many times of leaving and contemplated switching carriers, but every now and then, for one reason or other, they've convinced me to stay. But it feels to me, especially as of recently, like my conversation with customer service always goes the same exact way. I find myself saying the same thing to them, which is I'll end up for some reason or other calling customer service, and I'll tell the guy on the other end, you know, I lament because you guys seem to always pull out all the bells and whistles and all the stops to get new customers. You'll do anything to recruit a new person and so if you'll switch over you'll cut your bill in half, if you come over today we'll cancel your cancellation fees and pay those for you, here's a new iPhone, here's our left kidney, whatever it is to get you to come over, right? On the other hand no matter what I do it's thank you Mr. Thomas we appreciate your 20 years of business. And so it feels to me like for a new tech customer you will pull out all All the stops, there'll be all the bells and whistles, but for the ones that have been around for a while, for a few months or years or decades, this whole thing can feel tired and old and stale. I've recently complained to Jesus that sometimes a relationship with him can feel like that. Like When I'm around a new convert, a new believer who has just come to faith in Jesus Christ, it feels to me like they are experiencing God with great power, that God is tangible and vivid and real to them. They're excited about the Bible. They can't get enough of the pages of Scripture. They gather with God's people with great energy and excitement. The love of Jesus feels to them so vivid, so tangible, so real Sharing their faith doesn't feel like it's got to be manipulated and coerced. It bubbles up out of their soul. They've got deep, meaningful relationships with other believers that are satisfying. Their prayer life feels vibrant and real. And God seems to answer their prayers. And it only further convinces them that the Lord Jesus is real and near and dear. Everything about Jesus and everything about Christianity feels when I'm around them new and fresh and tangible, and vivid, and real, but for the older believers, the ones that have been with Jesus for some time, for 20 years, many of those feelings fade. I mean, perhaps we can be honest enough with one another to admit that at times this whole thing feels dry, and tired, and worn, and stale, I mean, it's not like you're leaving, perhaps, you're still here, you're here this morning, sort of like I'm not leaving my carrier, but at the same time, the whole relationship can feel like it's lost something, like like what was once this burning inferno has now reduced to a flickering flame that feels like is just one gust away from being blown out completely, like something that is cooled down the the fire seems to have faded the passion seems to have dwindled the zeal seems to have been lost and so if that's you I'd ask you brother sister has your love for Jesus grown cold has it dwindled some has your zeal evaporated sort of like a a stale marriage where you're still together but something's missing the spark is all but gone If that's you in any way, shape, or form, I truly believe that the Lord Jesus has something to say to you, particularly through the passage we're looking at today. In fact, for all of us, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I think that this passage wants to show you all the bells and whistles, all the stops that Jesus is willing to pull out to win someone to himself, to show in undeniable ways to a people, to a place, to a city that he truly is Lord. And if you are a follower of Jesus, perhaps someone who has been with Jesus for a long time, and that fire has died down, and that love has dwindled, and that zeal has dissipated, I believe that this passage has something that God wants you to hear as well. We are today in Acts chapter 19, so that's where I need you to keep your Bibles open to, and we're looking at a church in particular. We're looking at the church at Ephesus And in reading a number of preachers this week, I was glad to be pointed out that the church of Ephesus is one of the rare churches in the Bible where we get to see not only how it began, but how it lived, and even follow it all the way to how it declined. Meaning the Bible, the New Testament, gives us an arc with this one church so that we get to follow it not only to when it began, its earliest hours, its planting, but how it lived. And more than that, even the arc of the decline of this church plant. So, we're going to be in Acts 19, but I want to start by actually just reading you one section from Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is towards the end, right? The decline of this church. It's the last book of the Bible, and in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is going to speak to seven churches. And the first one he's going to speak to is the church at Ephesus. A church, as we'll see from Acts 19, that was planted by the Apostle Paul. A church that if you keep reading in the New Testament and read 1st and 2nd Timothy, you'll learn was pastored by Timothy. If you keep reading and read 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you'll learn was pastored by John. So this church at Ephesus had no shortage of incredible leaders. Planted by Paul. Pastored by Timothy and John. And yet in Revelation 2, would you hear what Jesus says to this church? Revelation 2 verse 1 to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. That's just a, a phrase for Jesus. That's Jesus, and he's going to speak to these seven churches pictured as seven lampstands. And now he says to Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are patiently, or enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Pause there for a second. Jesus is essentially giving this church, church plant a report card. He's giving them an assessment of who they are and how they're doing. And he starts by telling them that the church at Ephesus, there's some places where Ephesus gets an A. There's some places and things that are going really well at Ephesus. Some places that Jesus wants to commend the church. So, for example, he says, I know your works. I know your toil. If you pause there for a second, we should receive the encouragement that comes from that. Isn't it an encouraging thing to know nothing you have ever done in the service of Jesus Christ has been missed by him, has been unnoticed by him, has slipped his mind. He says to them, I know your works. I know your toil. Isn't it a wonderful thing that we should pause for a moment and know that everything you've ever done for Jesus, the prayers that you prayed in secret, The note of encouragement that you wrote unprompted by yourself of your own initiative. The time when you dropped everything to prepare a meal and bring it over to the one who was in need. The time when you, in secret, cleaned up a classroom or a kitchen in service to others. The time you stayed up late at night to prep a Sunday school class for the kids who would sit in front of you. The time you stretched yourself relationally to build a relationship with a neighbor and share Christ. The time you took a risk and brought up his name the time you sacrificed and gave some money, Jesus says of all of it, I know your works. I know your toil. Meaning, whatever was missed by man, whatever went unrecognized, uncelebrated, unapplauded, unseen by man, has never missed Jesus' eyes. In fact, you've never given a cup of cold water in Jesus' name that he will forget. I know your works. I know your toil, all that you've ever done, he says to the church at Ephesus. This is a hard-working industrial church that is busy with labor for Jesus. Moreover, he says, and I know your patient endurance. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and that you have not grown weary. As we'll see when we read Acts 19, being a Christian in Ephesus was by no means easy. From the hour the church was planted, there was opposition. Opposition from people, opposition from demons. There was a riot in the city. Soon enough, there would be opposition from within. There was no ease to being a Christian in Ephesus. And yet Jesus says, I have seen, and I know how you have patiently endured. I know that you have not grown weary. I know that you have borne things and suffered for my name's sake. And moreover, he says, and I know... That you can't bear, verse 2, those who are evil, but you've tested them and you've come to see that they are false meaning. I know that you haven't strayed into false teaching. I know that you know and love your Bibles enough that you would spot false teaching if you heard it. If someone stood up in a pulpit at the church at Ephesus and said something unbiblical, I know that you wouldn't tolerate it. Because I know that you're a church that has sound theology. I know that you have right doctrine. I know that you have right beliefs. No matter what the pressure of the culture was, you've never watered down the gospel. You've never strayed away from truth. So would you consider the church at Ephesus? He's saying this is a hardworking, enduring biblically faithful, theologically and doctrinally sound church that is willing to suffer for Jesus, has not tapped out, has not quit, has not grown weary, and is still with the Lord. And then you get this pivot. Because then Jesus says, but, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's a sobering word. He's saying to this church that has all these things going right, and to these Christians that are sitting in these chairs with all these things going right, that the church at Ephesus is in danger. Grave spiritual danger. That the fire it once had is almost in danger of being snuffed out. And he says to this church, You're in danger. And what's the problem at Ephesus? It's not their theology. It's not their beliefs. They're not drifting away from the truth. They're not watering down the gospel. They're not compromising on their faith. It's also that they're not embracing sin and calling right what God has called wrong. They're not living in wickedness. What's wrong with them? It's not that they're not working for the Lord or failing to serve him. In fact, they are busier than ever working for the Lord. In fact, you might even say they're as busy as, as Jesus' friend Martha, working tirelessly for him, But that perhaps is exactly it. They are as busy as Martha, but they have not sat like Mary at Jesus' feet simply in love for him. You see, they are working tirelessly for the Lord, but their love for the Lord has grown cold. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you have at first. There's no problem with what they believe. There's not even a problem with how they live. There's no danger of them leaving Jesus. Jesus. There's not a threat of them not, of growing weary and tapping out and quitting. They're doing everything right. But the fire that was in here is now flickering like a a dangerously weak flame. And they are on the verge of being snuffed out. And that's what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. But here's the thing, 7 Maron, this actually isn't a word of judgment. It's not a word of condemnation. It's a word of warning. Jesus loves this church and loves these Christians who are dangerously close to having the fire snuffed out so much that he wants to warn them. And the reason is because there's still time to do something. There's something that the Ephesian Christians can do. There's a way to light the fire again. There's a way to rekindle the love again. There's a way to get back the love that you had at first. And so what did Jesus say to them? Verse 5. In Revelation 2, 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What does he say? Remember. Remember, Ephesus, From where you came, from where you began, from the heights from which you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So the the dangerously cold Christians at Ephesus and at Seven Mile Road are called to remember those early hours, to remember the heights from which you fell, to repent and return to do the things you did at first. So the question is, what did Ephesus do at first? What were those early hours? And that's Acts 19. So flip back to Acts 19 for a second. Because when you get to Acts 19, you get the early hours of the church at Ephesus. You get when things started. You get when Jesus first showed up to their city. And when they first met Jesus. And they first fell in love with him. And they first believed him. And those early hours. Now, in Acts 19, you'll find as you read it that Paul spends three years in the city of Ephesus. And a lot happens over the course of those three years. In fact, Acts 19 and Acts 20 are both about his ministry in Ephesus. Today, we're just covering the first half of 19, just 1 to 20. And you'll see all the things that Jesus does when he first shows up in the city, how he pulls out all the stops, all the bells and whistles, all that Jesus does so that in undeniable, tangible ways, he might convince the people of his reality, that he really is Lord, and win them to himself. For the sake of time, I won't read it for you now, but you can see it right from the start in verses 1 through 7. If you scan over 1 through 7, you'll see that Paul meets some disciples when he gets to Ephesus. And when you read through that section, what you'll see is that like Apollos, who we met earlier in chapter 18, these first disciples that he encounters in Ephesus, they have a knowledge about Jesus, but their knowledge is incomplete. Look through that section and you'll see that Paul basically goes up to these 12 disciples at Ephesus and he says, listen, something's off about your journey. So let me ask you, have you received the Holy Spirit when you first believed? And these 12 basically respond by saying, we can receive the Holy Spirit. We've never heard of that. And so Paul begins to fill in the gaps of the things in their theology that's missing. And so he begins to tell them, then what into what were you baptized? And they say, we got John's baptism. And Paul begins to say, well, John's baptism was great, but it was preparatory. It was pointing you to Jesus who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, who would send the Holy Spirit with great power. Jesus said, when I go, you will receive power and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so he tells them that. They believe. He baptized them, lays his hands on them. And they, the 12 men in Ephesus, receive the Holy Spirit. They start speaking in tongues and prophesying. Look at verse 6. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now pause for a second. If that sounds familiar, it's because we had seen that before in the very first opening chapters of the book. In Acts 2, Jesus had promised that power would come down and the Spirit came down at what we call Pentecost. And they were filled with the Spirit and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So what's happening here in 19? All these chapters later, all these years later, all these miles later far ends of the earth in a Gentile city of Ephesus, the Spirit comes down and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. What you're having is a mini Pentecost, years, chapters, and miles away from Jerusalem in Acts 2. It's sort of Luke's way of saying the same Jesus who showed up in undeniable great power in Jerusalem, is not just Lord and God of Israel. He is Lord and God of the ends of the earth. And here he is pulling off another Pentecost in the Gentile city of Ephesus. You see, he's showing up in the city in undeniable, tangible, real ways so that he might demonstrate in Ephesus that he is Lord and God. Seeing then that Jesus is clearly at work at Ephesus, Paul begins to do ministry. That's verses 8 through 10, and I won't look there with you for the sake of time as well. But basically what happens is, Paul does his standard MO. He goes into the synagogue and starts preaching. He's allowed to preach there for three months, and for three months he reasons and argues and persuades people about Jesus from being the Christ from the scriptures. After three months he gets kicked out, because we've seen this pattern. Wherever the gospel advances, there's going to be pushback. And so he gets kicked out of the synagogue. And basically what he does, you'll see it in verse 10, is he goes to a hall called Tyrannus Hall in Ephesus. He's not allowed in the sacred places, so he'll go to the secular places. He can't bring people to the church, so he'll bring the church to the people. It's not just come and hear, it's go and tell. So now he will set up shop in Tyrannus Hall, and for two years, he will labor every day to communicate Jesus in the marketplace. Listen to me for a second. Commentators tell us that what you could expect in that day was people in Ephesus would have worked from sun up all the way till about 11 a.m., when the sun was about to come, the noonday sun. So you'd wake up at sunrise, start working, and then at 11 a.m. till about 4 p.m., everyone in Ephesus basically took a long siesta. In fact, one commentator says you'd find more people asleep at 1 p.m. than 1 a.m. in Ephesus because everyone took the afternoon nap. And so here was Paul's day. Paul would have woken up at sunrise, worked as a tent maker from sunrise till 11 a.m. And at 11 a.m. he would have walked over to Rannis Hall and he would have preached and lectured and taught on Jesus for about five hours And at 5 p.m. he would have closed up, went back, and continued working and making tents. And that was Paul's pattern, six days a week for two years. One commentator named John Stott says that's about 3,120 hours of gospel preaching, gospel arguing, gospel reasoning, proclaiming Jesus in the unheard of city of Ephesus. And as a result of that, verse 10 says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that something? If we sent out a church planter, he works bivocationally for two years, and at the end of two years, everyone in that region has heard the word of the Lord, we'd say, Jesus is clearly doing something with this church planter. Right? That's a church planter we would be glad to support. And Paul went there for two years. He shows up, gets a mini Pentecost because Jesus is showing up in undeniable power in Ephesus. He works for two years, and the whole region has heard of Jesus. But Luke's not done telling you of all the things Jesus does, all the bells and whistles, all the stops he pulls out so that he might win people to himself. And so in verse 11, Luke continues. And now to tell you, this is all the Lord's work. Don't forget that. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. Isn't that something? Luke wants you to remember, this is not about Paul. Paul is the pipe. Jesus is the power. Right? He's a conduit of God's power. He's an instrument of God's power. He's the pipe, but Jesus is the source. God was doing extraordinary work in the city of Ephesus. And what kind of extraordinary miracles? 12. So that even the handkerchiefs Or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Do you get how Jesus is showing up in Ephesus? In such undeniable, first-time converts' incredible, tangible power, so that... Paul has handkerchiefs, and basically what this is, is it's a word for like sweat rags. You know how like athletes wear a sweatband around their head or around their wrists? At the end of the game, they'll take those off and they'll throw them into the crowd, and it's amazing. People will fight over these sweaty sweatbands. But Paul, Paul would wear a rag around his head while he's making a tent or an apron around his waist, and at the end of the day, he'd take them and throw them away. And people would come because they had heard of Paul and of the Jesus that Paul had proclaimed and the power of this Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And they'd come and take those sweat rags away. And they'd bring them to the sick. And the sick would be healed by the handkerchiefs of Paul, by the aprons that came from his waist. And so they'd take them to far-off places. And those who had diseases were healed. And those who had demons would be cast out by the hanky of Paul. Right? Okay. Okay. Now, the power of Jesus is so prevalent in Ephesus, and everybody knows it, that everybody wants in on the power. And then you get one of the most curious and awesome stories. I was amazed that John didn't laugh as he read it. You get the verses, go on, 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Isn't that an awesome story? right? These itinerant Jewish exorcists. First of all, how did you come into that line of work, right? Who in high school told you, you know what would be good for you? I think you should go into itinerant exorcism ministry. And so that's what they do. These seven sons of Sceva are the ancient ghostbusters. So whenever something's wrong, they go from town to town and they exorcise demons. And so they show up and they see Paul's ministry. Now they don't believe in Paul's Jesus, but they want Paul's power. They don't believe his message, but they want to mimic his ministry. They don't need the person that Paul has, but they want his power. They don't want a relationship with this Jesus, but they want the benefits that come therein. And so they say to a demon, I adjure you in the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims, not in the name of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, But that guy, Paul, has been talking about Jesus, and so they go up to a demon, and they say to this demon, I adjure you in the name of Jesus, come out. And they figure, essentially, maybe it's like a magical incantation, right? If they get the right phrase, the hocus pocus, they can do it. The demon looks back at them and says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. Who the heck are you? And this demon overpowers the seven of them, beats them so bloody that they run out of the house wounded and naked. My favorite on this is a preacher named Matt Chandler says this. He says, you know, when people get into fights, there's always an argument about who won the fight, right? Like, you know, he did this, but then he got in a good hit. As a general rule, if you come into the fight wearing pants, and at the end of the fight, you don't have pants, you've lost the fight, right? You want to make an argument and go, but at the end of the day, he had underwear when he started, and he didn't have underwear when he ended, so he lost the fight, right? And so here... The power of Jesus is so great. You think of that. One one man overcomes seven of them. One demon overcomes seven of them. But that demon can't withstand Paul's hanky. That's how powerful the name of Jesus is. And moreover, isn't it something intriguing that the demon would go back and say, I know the demons in Ephesus would say, you don't have to tell me about, about Jesus. And I don't even need an introduction to Paul. But who are you? It almost makes you wonder if if we could intercept enemy chatter over Philadelphia. You wonder if any in the evil world are aware of us, are aware of you, in such a way that you've made some waves that the enemy world knows well what Seven Mile Road is. Or would they say, we know well, Jesus. We need no introduction to Jesus in Philadelphia. But who are you all? Whatever the case The name of Jesus is showing up in Ephesus in such undeniable power that listen to what happens as a result. 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. What were the heights in which it started at? What did they do in the first hours when they believed? When Jesus first showed up into their city, and Jesus first showed up into their lives, what were the hours of first believing? What did that look like? What happened when the church was first planted and when they first met Jesus? Here at least, do you see that they extolled the name of Jesus? That's just a word for they praise the name of Jesus. When they encountered Jesus in undeniable real ways, they could not say his name without extolling his great name. When they discovered that Jesus was real, when Jesus showed up in their life in tangible ways, when when they received Paul's message, when they believed the gospel for the first time, Jesus, that name was the sweetest name that had ever flown off their lips. And they extolled the name of Jesus in those first hours. What else did they do? They confessed their sins. Do you see that? Some believers came. For some season of their life, they had tried to keep their magic arts and Jesus. But as the power of Jesus became more real in their life, they came and confessed their practices. In that specific context, you know a magician's power is his secret. A magician never reveals his secret. What did they do? They came and and confessed and thereby emptied the power of everything they once held dear. Because now they found, I can't follow Jesus and keep this thing in my life. And so they came and confessed their sins. But not only that, unprompted, untold, they voluntarily brought their books that they had practiced their magic arts. They saw that this thing in their life that they had kept while trying to follow Jesus couldn't stand. And because this hindered their walk with Jesus, they voluntarily brought their books and burned 50,000 pieces worth of silver. Someone said $8 million worth of stuff in one day because this could not align with Jesus. They were so committed to Jesus that anything that hindered their walk with him They amputated out of their life. That's what they did at first. And that's the church that Jesus comes to and says, Church, you have right beliefs and you have right doctrine and you haven't left me and you're working tirelessly for me. But I have this against you you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And so what does Jesus say to them? Remember again, Revelation 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What should the Ephesians do if they have drifted away from Jesus? What should you do if you feel the Holy Spirit telling you you've drifted, you've lost the love that you had at first? What should you do? You should remember, repent, and return. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first, Jesus says. So, brother, sister, can I tell you? If you've wandered, remember. Remember back to when Jesus first showed up in your life. Remember the hour you first believed. Remember how vivid he was, how tangible he was, how real he was. Remember how he convinced your soul of your need for him and his provision for you. Remember how you loved him when you were so sure of his love for you. Remember. Remember back to those hours. Remember those early hours when the good news sounded so good to you. Someone came to you and said, Through the grace of God, your every sin could be forgiven. And remember what it was like to first believe that. To remember that all your sins, every single one from the past and in the present and in the future could be forgiven because Jesus Christ loved you so much that he died in your place and for your sins. Remember what it was like to be told that Jesus would leave everything if he could win you. Remember what it was like to be told that even if the whole world were fine and you were lost, he would have come for you. Remember what it was like when you believed this wasn't about your performance. In fact, when you first believed, you had to admit that your performance wasn't good enough. That's how you got saved. Remember, it had nothing to do with what you had done. Through no work and no merit of your own, someone came to you and proclaimed to you the good news of grace of Jesus Christ. Remember what it was like to believe. Remember. Remember those first hours. Remember with me the story of the prodigal son. When Jesus told that story, what is it? A boy had known the father and wandered far away from the father. And now sitting in a pigsty, what does he do? He remembers back to what life was like with his father. And sitting there in the pigsty, remembering that even his father's servants had something to eat, he turned, and the Bible says he came to his senses and went back. So what are we called to do? Remember. And as you remember, repent. Repent. Brother, sister, do not sit one minute longer where you are. Do not tolerate a cold heart for one more second. Do not put up with a wandering, backsliding spirit for one more moment. Do you remember the urgency with which you came to Jesus when you finally came to him? When you finally got on your knees and called out to him as your Lord and your Savior and your Christ? Do you remember how you came? And so in the same way, repent. Do not let this moment go, for the Lord God is calling to you, an old believer. He is not my cell phone carrier that is only trying to win new ones. He is calling out to you, saying, I miss us. I miss the love that you had at first for me. And so repent. This week I read a story of a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, a well-known preacher in, in, in England. And he tells the story that there was once a man in London... Who had professed faith in Christ. But after some time of following Jesus, he had wandered far away from the Lord. Wandered far away from his first love. He had abandoned the first love of his life, of his marriage, of his relationship with God. He had ruined it all. And so soon enough, this man had an affair. Soon thereafter, his marriage fell apart. Soon after that, the mistress he clung to left him. Soon after that, All his money ran out, and before you knew it, his life was in ruins. Now, destitute, depressed, alone, his life in shambles, alone and miserable, one night, he's walking through the streets of London, and he decides that he's going to end it all. So he walks over to the Westminster Bridge. He's going to climb over the railing and jump into the river. And Lloyd-Jones says, just then, Big Ben struck 6.30, and he remembered that over at Westminster Chapel, they had probably just begun the evening service. And he thought to himself that Martin Lloyd-Jones was probably climbing up into his pulpit at that very moment and thought to himself, I'll go listen to him one last time before I end it all. And so he snuck back into the church, climbed up into the balcony, made his way into the seat. And as he was taking his seat, the first words he heard were Martin Lloyd-Jones' pastoral prayer that night. And Lloyd-Jones began by saying, God have mercy on the backslider. Oh God, have mercy on the backslider. And at that moment, his heart was arrested that the Lord God, whom he had wandered away from for all this time, had caused it that at just the right moment, the Big Ben would strike, and at just the right moment, he would come back, and just the right moment, as he sat, the first words to be heard Or, oh God, have mercy on the backslider. And in that moment, he remembered and repented and returned, went on to be an elder and died a faithful and true Christian. Brother or sister, I'm telling you, you're here today because the Lord God is saying, I intend to have mercy on the backslider. I am not just winning new converts with all bells and whistles while you slip out the back door. I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Therefore, remember the heights from which you've fallen. Repent and return. Return. What does he say? Do the things that you did at first. If it was Ephesus, do the things you did at first. Extol the name of Jesus. Confess your sins. You don't have to pretend to be great. In that first hour, you had no pretense. You you weren't pretending to be better than you were. You had to admit that you weren't good. That's how you came to Jesus. Confess your sins. And then this radical amputation that I will cut out of my life, anything that hinders my walk with Jesus. I will not hold on to these books. I will burn them gladly if it means Jesus. So what is it in your life that you will say, I will gladly part with that if it means I can rekindle my fire with Jesus, my love for Jesus. So here it is, brother, sister. If you've never met Jesus, the invitation to you is, do you see how he pursues people like the ones in Ephesus? There's no stops he won't pull to try and get you to see his undeniable reality, his love for you, that you might come to know him. And if you've been with him for a long time, say some months, say some years, say some decades, the Lord Jesus has not forgotten about you. In fact, he brought you here today to hear this word, so that your soul might be called out, that he longs for you to return, to remember, to repent, and return. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now pour out your spirit on us without limit. And We pray like a great magnet, you would draw our hearts back to you, that the same spirit that caught many of us once would catch us again. Lord, let us not tarry for one more minute, waiting for one more thing. What more must you do but speak to us this morning and call us back to yourself that we wouldn't wake up and remember and come to our senses and return to you. We pray that you would help us to return to the things we did in the hours we first believed how we devoured your word, how we gathered with your people, how we sat with great earnestness to hear from you, how you were the passion of our soul and we wanted nothing more. We ask, O Lord, that you would, in mercy and love to all the backsliders, rekindle our fire and cause the flame to blaze again and cause the love to be restored so that we would say, Lord Jesus, we love you. More than anything else, more than any other hour, we love you now. Help us do this and more, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.